Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler. Thanks so much, brother. Uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Exodus chapter 20. To Exodus chapter 20. We'll be there in just a second. Uh, if you're new or visiting, we're continuing our series through the Ten Commandments. And so what we've been learning is that the Ten Commandments are here, are given to us because God is teaching his people what it means to worship him in every area of life. The Ten Commandments are not just this list of burdensome rules you have to follow. They're the way that you worship God in all of life and the way God frees you up to follow him in all of life, to follow the one who saved you, who loved you, who rescued you from sin and Satan and death to be with him. And so what we're looking at the last couple of weeks at the last six commands is God commanding his people to worship him in how we relate to one another, how we treat other people. And so what we saw in the fifth and the sixth commandments, we saw that we worship God when we honor our father and mother. We worship God when we follow the command of you shall not murder. And today, the seventh commandment, we're going to see that God's going to address our sexuality. God's going to address our sexuality. So we're going to turn to Exodus 20. Um, if you're here, maybe you brought a young child with you and you're thinking, I did not prepare for this, like, and, you're not, and, it's, and you're not ready for that with them, that's totally fine. Use this, use this as an opportunity to go check them into our kids' ministry as I read through the first verses of Exodus so you don't have to feel obligated to have them sit through this. We're going to talk about sex the entire sermon. So uh, Exodus 20, verse 1. Exodus 20, verse 1. We're going to read these, the, the preface to the Ten Commandments because I want you to see that God's law always comes first from him saving you. Okay, Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I did all this work for you. Now here are the Ten Commandments. Now here's the Seventh Commandment, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. In the seventh commandment, God is addressing your and my sexual expression. And while obviously this command is definitely prohibiting and dealing with infidelity in existing marriages, this commandment is about so much more than just that. God is speaking to human sexuality in general. Because when you read the whole Bible all the way through, what you'll find is that there throughout the scriptures, there are these common themes, these common threads woven throughout the narrative. That even though the Bible has been written over three different continents by 40 different authors over thousands of years in different languages, what you see is the ultimate author behind all of it, God, weaving through there similar themes, similar ideas being dressed by all the different writers. And one of those themes that you find consistently again and again in the Bible is how important and how sacred human sexuality is. What you find so often in the Bible is how important, how sacred human sexuality is. God cares a great deal about how you express your sexual desires because God made those desires, because God created sex. He keeps bringing it up not because he's grossed out by the sex, but because he created it, because it's special and sacred to him. He keeps addressing it in his word because when we rebelled against God, we've lost what sex was made to be. We've lost that. Just like every other gift of God, when we start worshiping it instead of God, that gift begins to lose its life, its vitality, its meaning, its purpose, its beauty. It's only a matter of time. 
And so what we did, instead of seeing sex as a gift designed for marriage, we turned sex into a god. We worshipped it. And it overpromised and underdelivered. And God has to wake us up to see all the ways we've distorted this gift. Now, this is not a modern phenomenon. Do not think, oh, this is an issue now because our culture is so bad. That's, that's not actually it. This has always been an issue. There has never been a golden age where a society and a people have gotten this right. As soon as Adam and Eve bought the lie that God could not be trusted, human sexuality has been distorted. So the, the last generation before us, they didn't get it right, and we haven't gotten it right either. Every generation, every people, every context, every society gets this wrong in different ways. It just manifests itself in different types of dysfunction. But when you look at the word of God, you see none of us have gotten this right, and God critiques all of us. So here's what happens when it comes, when we think about sexuality, what I've found is we tend to oscillate between two different extremes. And I use the word oscillate on purpose because I don't think we're one or the other on this. I think we tend to go back and forth between these two extremes. So on one extreme, we associate sex with shame. On one extreme, we associate sex with shame. And on the other extreme, we associate sex with identity. We associate sex with our very identity, what it means to be human. See, without God's word, without God's grace in your life, the one extreme is you'll associate sex with shame. I mean, even me talking about it right now makes some of us feel very uncomfortable because when we think about sex, there's all sorts of guilt tied up with it. All sorts of issues that come to mind with this topic. And there are a lot of reasons for this. One of the main ones that we have expressed our sexuality in ways God has forbid us to do. And so we have a conscience, because you're human, that God placed in every human being, whether you believe in him or not, that testifies to our guilt, that reminds us of all the ways we've failed. And so we think about sexuality and it brings up shame and remorse. For others of us, it brings up shame because we have been the victims of sexual assault or abuse. And so we have a very difficult time separating sex from that traumatic, evil, awful thing that happened to us. And others of us, we, we have these desires that we know that are wrong, but we just can't seem to get rid of them. No matter what we do, they're always there. So on the one end of the spectrum, it's easy to, for us to associate sex with shame, but God has good news for you today. Jesus can get rid of shame. He can cleanse guilty consciences. He can heal wounds, and he can bring clarity in the midst of sexual confusion. He has good news when we go to this end of the spectrum. So on one end, it's shame, but on the other extreme, we associate sex with our very identity, with our very identity. See, without God's word and God's grace in our lives, we will take sex as, and turn it from this gift that God gave to marriage, and we turn it into the way you know you're human. We turn it into, now, my sexuality is who I am now. We, we buy the lie that if, if something feels good and it makes me immediately happy, then there's no way it could be wrong or bad for me. And so to restrict sexuality in any form or fashion feels like an attack on us as a person. Why? Because we believe on this end, I am my sexuality. To restrict it is to restrict my own personal flourishing. On this end, we buy into this modern day myth that the happiest people, those who get to live the good life, are those who live without any sexual restriction. So it happens all the time in our culture. The people 
that are idolized so often are those who have do whatever they want sexually. No restrictions, no limits, and they're the ones to be in awe of how, much ha how happy they must be because to be human is to express your sexuality on this extreme. But there's really good news that God has for us when we tend that direction. Jesus can give you an identity better than your sexuality. Jesus can, can give you relationships built on love instead of sensuality. Jesus can give you joy that trumps even the greatest sexual experience you could ever have in this life. So when you think about us as a people, the way forward, when we oscillate, and don't, and don't think, oh, I'm on that side or that side. We all tend to oscillate between the two. The only way for us to have a way forward is to have a North Star, so to speak. It's to have God tell us, okay, how do we make sense of all this? Because there's few things as disorienting as your own sexual desires. They're primal, they're visceral, they're disorienting. So we need this fixed point, this North Star, to help make sense of everything else. It's why did God create sex? What did he make it to be? Because when God creates sex and he restricts it to marriage, which makes things like adultery wrong, you have to know he's restricting it because he's protecting something. You have to know that God is restricting, he makes sex and then restricts it to marriage because he's guarding something. There's something precious there he's trying to protect. You have got to understand this concept. Restriction is not the enemy of joy. We do not understand that as affluent, wealthy Americans, but restriction is not the enemy of joy. It's not. You can place very severe, rigid restrictions on yourself for the sake of greater, longer-lasting joy. You can. You absolutely can. And I know all of us fundamentally get this, that restrictions are not the enemy of joy by the way you and I view dieting and exercise. We totally get it. We understand that restriction is not the enemy of joy. We are a city known for how much we value eating healthy, how much we value working out. I love that about our city. I love that about our city. Because we get, okay, for a diet to work, by definition, you have to put restrictions on what you eat. You have to put restrictions on what you eat. You have to, even and for a diet to actually work, you have to keep putting restrictions on yourself even when you don't want them. Even when you don't want them, you have to put restrictions on yourself. A one-day diet is not going to fix you. Sorry to break the news. A one-meal diet is not going to work. It, has, it takes ongoing restriction of things that you want and saying no to yourself. Just this last week, I was in a, a, at a barbecue place for lunch, and my two sides, I got green beans and mac and cheese. And I think that the woman behind the counter felt obligated, like morally obligated to tell me, she goes, hey, just so you, she goes, those green beans are not going to cancel out that mac and cheese, buddy. I was like, I, I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, calories don't work like positive and negative numbers. They don't cancel each other out. That would be fantastic. But for a diet to work, what you just tell yourself, no, even if you really want the mac and cheese, you can eat all the green beans you want. Those calories aren't going anywhere, okay? It takes restriction. You have to say no to yourself. The same thing's true with working out, right? You have to restrict your schedule. You have to restrict your sleep habits sometimes. You have to take on momentary pain. So why do you restrict yourself? Like, seriously, why not eat everything you want? Why? Like, why not? Why work out and put yourself through pain you don't have to have? Because you're restricting yourself to do what? To protect and promote greater joy. That's why you're doing it. 
If, trust me, if, if I could eat fried chicken all the time and still be fine, I would never not eat it. Like that's the way it would work. You're putting restrictions on yourself so that you can have, you can protect the body God gave to you as what it is, a, a precious gift he gave to you. When you restrict yourself, you are saying and you understand intuitively that I will be happier and feel better longer term by restricting myself than if I let every desire I have run rampant. You know, by definition, when you diet, that some of your desires are off. That some of your desires, though the food may taste good, will actually kill you in the end. You know that. Restriction's not, not the enemy of joy. And this absolutely applies to the way God created sex. He created sex to be exclusively in the confines of marriage. Why? He wants to protect and promote greater joy. That's what he's after. God is not a prude. He has a purpose. He's not restricting it because he's a prude, because he thinks it's gross to talk about. He has a purpose for sexuality, so he restricts it. And that's why we can't understand his restriction, because we don't understand what he's protecting. We don't understand the joy he's promoting. So you have to understand his framework you have to understand that God created sex and he created sexual desire before sin ever entered into the world. When everything was good is when he made sex. Genesis 1.28, don't turn there, but it'll be really quick. I'll show you that where God creates sex. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He institutes for the procreation, he says, you're going, the way you're going to do that is by having sex with one another, Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 23. Then the man said, he sees Eve for the first time, he says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and, not, and were not ashamed. It's in the goodness of creation that God gifts to Adam and to Eve, the first married couple, the gift of sex. It was the means by which they would accomplish their task of procreation and the means by which they would express their oneness and enjoyment of one another as a couple. Adam and Eve did not stumble into sex. It's not as if God was like, hey, you guys are good, I'll be back. What are you doing? Get off of her. Like, that's, not what, that's not what happened. He wasn't like, I did not see that happening. I didn't think that through. Um, that's not what happened. God gave it to them in the first marriage as a gift. God is not ashamed of sex, and sex was not a distortion that came from sin. It's really important you understand that. God thought up sex, and he made it integral and a sacred expression of love within the marriage covenant. Sin and Satan did not create sin, I mean, did not create sex or sexual desire. Sin and Satan did not create sex or sexual desire. God made those things. Sin and Satan can't create anything. Only God can create. What sin and Satan do is they take the good desires God gave us and they corrupt them. They make them crooked, so to speak. They make those desires go towards things they're never, they were never meant to. Sin and Satan didn't create sex, they just distorted our desires. And what you see from the very beginning, human sexuality was created to be expressed within the context of marriage. 
Sexual des- your sexual desires were meant to be expressed in the context of a lifelong, permanent relationship between the man and a woman who give all of themselves to the other. That's what it was made for. It wasn't made just to be given just to anyone who desired it, who you met one time. It's someone who says, you have all of me, every part. It's the physical expression of the oneness in marriage. Your physical nakedness was reserved for the other person who said, you know everything about me. Your physical nakedness is a picture of your nakedness in the rest of your life. Your transparency in the rest of your life, your openness about your emotions, your openness about your bank account, your openness about your text thread, your openness about everything, it's now theirs. See, sex in marriage is this physical picture of what you proclaimed on your wedding day. It's the physical way you say, I belong completely and totally and exclusively to you. It's where husband and wife say to one another, No one has me the way you have me. It was meant for that beautiful picture. And God made sex in marriage an integral part of it. The marriage covenant isn't just where sex happens to occur or God allows it. It's where God expects it. Teaching on the text of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. He says, sex inside of marriage isn't just permitted in the Bible, it's commanded. It's commanded. God is not indifferent and God is not shy about sex and probably talks about it in ways that probably make a lot of us feel uncomfortable. Have you ever read Song of Solomon? Dang. Like, it's provocative. It's explicit. It's a whole book. If you never read it, you're like, I don't get it. Uh, Read it today. You'll get it. Um, It's a... It's poetry devoted to the celebration of the love and the joy and the sexual intimacy within marriage. It's part of God's inerrant word. Of all the things he could have put in the Bible, he thought, I want this eight chapters, this poem devoted to celebrating what I made sex and marriage to be. God is not shy about it, and God has a higher view of sex than any of us in this room. Than anyone in our city, he has a higher view of sex than any of us. And he restricts it to marriage because he doesn't want you sharing the most vulnerable parts of who you are physically or emotionally with just anyone who desires it or just just because you desired it. You are more valuable than that to just share the most intimate parts of who you are with anyone who wants it. You're more valuable than that. So married couples in this room, And those of you who know you're not married now, maybe God will call you to be married one day. This is why your sex life together in a marriage is something you have to talk about together. It can't be this topic that you don't talk about, it's never brought up, and you're never working through issues that you have in this area of your marriage because your sex life is a marker of marital health. You've got to understand that. It's not the only marker in marital health, but it's one of them for sure. Because... What it is, it's this picture of the, what your larger relationship is like. Because what you'll find is if you struggle being intimate and vulnerable in other areas of your life, then over time it's, it's going to become more and more difficult for you to be vulnerable and intimate through the act of sex with your spouse. It's this window into your relationship. 
So married couples, it has to be something you talk about and think about because past hurts and insecurities and sins in our lives will affect the marriage bed over time. And so if this was all sex was made for, just this, what we would probably perceive as this romantic view where sex is only meant for this lifelong, committed, permanent relationship, we could probably understand why God would restrict it. We could probably go, I, I can get behind that. That's a beautiful thing to fight for. But actually, sex is about so much more than just marriage. It's about so much more than just marriage. It's about something even more precious, more permanent, and more prominent than a husband and a wife. It's bigger than that. It's actually this signpost pointing us to something even more beautiful than that. Ephesians 5, 31. Paul, quoting Genesis 2, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This profound mystery that was hidden in Genesis 2 that's revealed to us in Ephesians 5, this profound mystery is that the entire marriage relationship, including your sex life, is actually pointing us to the relationship between Jesus and his church, his bride. And all of it's pointing to him. Sex is so profound and so sacred because it's the physical picture and the physical metaphor for the joy and intimacy and delight and oneness between Jesus and his bride, the church. The absolute best, best sex within a marriage, with this incredible oneness and intimacy and vulnerability and pleasure and a sense of security and commitment to one another, the absolute best sex you'll ever have with your spouse is a drop in the ocean compared to the ecstasy you will have when you see Jesus face to face. It does not to that day when God takes away sin and Satan and death and every barrier is, remo is removed between us and God, sex is meant to be a pointer to that day. It's meant to say this represents the eternal oneness and delight and joy Jesus and his people will have with one another. And that's why adultery and that's why every sexual expression outside of a husband and wife is wrong because it distorts, it muddies, it belittles this heavenly image. It distorts it, it belittles it. See, our sexual expression and the way we restrict it either enhances the heavenly image and tells us and people around us, hey, this is what Jesus and his church are like, or when we express it with no thought of God, we are speaking lies about the way Jesus and his church interact with one another. So men in this room, married, single, whether you consider yourself young or you consider yourself older, men in this room, when we express our sexuality in any way with anyone who is not our wife, we are saying, we are communicating that Jesus is not faithful to his bride. That's what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus did not serve, he did not love, he did not sacrifice before he ever got to have his bride. No, what we communicate when we do that, men, is we say that Jesus, that his bride, he just uses her for his own purposes. We're saying that his bride is easily discarded and easily replaceable with whoever we find available. 
men, our lustful fantasies, our viewing of pornographic images, our flirting with infidelity and committing infidelity is a massive deal. One, because we're breaking God's law, and that would be enough. But it's even more devastating because we are saying that Jesus is someone he's not. We're saying he just uses the church to meet his own sensual needs. That's what we're saying. Women in this room, married or single, whether you consider yourself young or old or wherever you are, when, how, if, you, if, we, if you express your sexuality in any way with someone who's not your husband, you are communicating that the church has no husband worthy of her. You're, you're, saying, you're saying that the church has plenty of lovers, Plenty of people worthy of her most intimate secrets and highest trust. That's what you're communicating. You're saying that as soon as Jesus doesn't come through for us in the ways we think he should, that you should run to the first person available so long as they're nice and make you feel safe. Women, your lustful and emotional fantasies, your viewing of pornographic images, your flirting with infidelity and committing infidelity isn't just a big deal because you broke God's law, though that's a big deal and that would be enough. But it's even more devastating because you're saying the church has no husband worthy of, of her. And you're saying that Jesus' rivals are worthy to receive what he alone died to receive. I am willing to bet that none of us view our sexuality as that sacred. We live in a culture saturated with pornographic images, and so our view of sex is so, so low. And your sexuality may not feel this important or this sacred, but can I tell you, it absolutely is. And you can see how sacred, how important it is by when Jesus, when he teaches on this command, do not commit adultery, he uses some of the most severe language that he could use to talk about what it means to guard our sexuality and protect the image God made it to represent. I want you to listen to how Jesus teaches this text. Matthew 5, 27. Listen to the language he uses to describe it. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus takes us into the heart of all sexual expression outside of marriage. He takes it to our very desires. And here's what he said. Sexual sin does not start on the surface. It takes root in your heart when you begin to have your sexual desires end on someone who isn't your spouse. It starts in your thought life. It starts in your fantasies. It starts in those attractions you never told anybody about. It starts there. And 
he says it begins to work itself out into more visible manifestations over time. And he is instituting a new ethic, a new attitude that every follower of his has to have if you're going to follow him. That we all have to have. And in short, here's what the ethic is. Jesus says, you must do whatever it takes to honor God with your sexuality. That's what he's saying. The ethic is, Christian, do whatever it takes to honor God with your sexuality. He uses the imagery of cutting off hands and tearing out eyes to show the type of attitude we have to have towards our lives when it comes to sexual sin. What he's saying is nothing is off limits for my people. He's saying even good things like hands and good things like eyes have to be discarded they lead you to sexual sin. He's not being literal. He doesn't mean actually cut off hands and gouge out eyes. He's using them and saying, how good and how valuable is a hand? How good, how valuable is an eye? They're irreplaceable. And he's saying, better to lose something good in your life to abstain from sexual sin than to lose nothing in this life and lose everything in the next. That's the logic of what he said. So if you're here, if you're here and you're thinking there are parts, and you've expressed to, even in prayer to other people, there are parts of my sexuality that are off limits. There are things that I am unwilling to give up, unwilling to compromise, unwilling to talk about. Jesus is saying, then you won't have to lose anything in this life. But he's saying you will lose everything in the next. That's what he's saying. Because the reason he says that is that this isn't a works-based righteousness. What he's saying is those who see me for who I am and those who get what I'm doing are not going to have any area of our lives that we're saying, off-limits, Jesus, you can't speak into this. Jesus is not saying his people are going to be perfect. He's saying his people will sacrifice, though. Hear me really clearly on that. He's not saying you're going to be perfect. He's saying it is going to require sacrifice. Because too often with our sexuality, the questions we ask are things like, well, how far is too far? I've gotten that question so many times. And I never answer it. Because it's the wrong question. Because behind that question, or when we're like, well, I mean, this movie isn't rated R, so I can probably watch it, Right? We start asking these questions. Here's what we're really after oftentimes with, with, with our sexuality. We're asking, what are the things I can do and not get into trouble? To be more specific, what are the things that I can do that no one in this church could ever dare hold me accountable to? What are those things that if someone were to call me out on, I would have a rebuttal with, well, show me your verse, and it's not in there. That's what we're asking. But when you see the world and your sexuality through the words of Jesus, you ask different questions. It's not that you ask the same questions with different responses. You ask fundamentally different questions. The question for us, when we look at the words of Jesus, we say, what are the things that help me follow him faithfully in my sexuality? What are those things that promote in me fidelity to him? What are those things that promote in me love for my spouse? What are the things that promote in me abstaining from sexual sin. And we ask other questions like, what are those things that just tend to numb me to my own corrupt sexual desires? 
Like those things that may not lead immediately to sexual sin, but those things that kind of create an ecosystem of your life where things like sexual sin tend to grow up. Those things that just numb you to the realities of God, and they numb you, and you think the only response is to take in sensual pleasures. See, God's people look at life and sexuality and go, anything that gets in the way has to go. It has to go. So for us, church, instead of trying to find loopholes, look for ways you can sacrifice in order to honor God. So, for example, just to speak really practically, your entertainment, I mentioned it a minute ago, but I want to speak to it directly. Your entertainment, what you take in. We are way, and I am guilty of this as anyone else, we are way too casual about this. We take freedom in Christ and we justify that and use an opportunity to take in things that we know numb us to him. So here's the question you have to ask with your entertainment, not is it permissible? The question you need to ask is, does this help me stay sexually pure? Does watching that show or watching that movie, is it really helping me or do I know deep down it kind of stirs up fantasies that I have and it makes it harder for me to fight against sin? That's the questions we ask. Those of you in dating relationships, it's not how far is too far, it's how can we go the extra mile and make sure we don't even get close to sexual sin? When we think about dating relationships, now we're thinking about, not in terms of our boyfriend and girlfriend, about living arrangements and, and arguing off of pragmatism and like, well, we're gonna get married one day, so us living together now doesn't really matter. No, you start asking the question, does living together when you're not married communicate how serious and how sacred and how important and the picture marriage and sexuality is pointing to? Or does it communicate a very light, flippant understanding of what marriage and sexuality is meant to represent? You begin to take away good things. There are spouses in here who you have a friendship with someone who you're attracted to and it's nothing right now. But you just know yourself, you're like, you know what, it's not worth it. It's not worth texting them, asking them that question. It's not worth interacting with them. I just know me. I'm just going to stay away from that. Not because anything's even happened, but because I want to cut off hands and gouge out eyes to make sure I am faithful to God. And on and on, we could go with different scenarios we could talk about. But the ethos is, okay, whatever it takes, honor God with your sexuality. Now, when you and I will take what Jesus has said and what we've looked at and begin to apply it to our lives, here's what's gonna become very evident to you very quickly. We fail a lot. We fail a lot. And if this is all Jesus has for you and has for me, we are totally lost and hopeless. How often have we failed him? How often have we distorted the picture sexuality was meant to represent? We have failed him so many times in this area. I have failed him so many times over my life in this area. And so Jesus gives you two things that no one else can give to you. He gives you real hope and real forgiveness. A lot of people and a lot of entities are going to tell you how you should express your sexuality. They're gonna tell you how you should express your sexuality. You've just heard how God says you, you should express it? And all sorts of people are going to tell you, he's wrong, this is how you should express it. But here's the thing that none of them can offer, the hope and forgiveness Jesus offers. See, Jesus gives you real hope and gives me real hope that restricting our sexuality for God's sake will lead to more joy. It'll lead to more joy. 
every person in this room, whether you're married or single, you're gonna have to restrict your sexuality at some level. You're still broken. You still have desires that are corrupt. And so you're at some level gonna have to restrict your sexuality. Marriage does not fix lust. It doesn't fix loneliness. You can be married and be completely miserable. We've seen many. It doesn't get rid of the lies that God, you are holding out on me with this particular spouse. If I had that one, I'd be so much better off. Marriage does not fix the problem. So all of us are still gonna have to, as Christians, whether we're married or we're single, gonna have to restrict our sexual desires in some form and some fashion. But I especially wanna talk to you about the real hope Jesus gives to those of you in this room who are single, who God has called and will call to the blessing of singleness, whether for a season or for a lifetime. Jesus gives you real hope. He gives you real hope that you do not have to express your sexuality to be happy. He gives real hope to that, that you don't have to express your sexuality to be happy. The myth is you can't be human and happy without sex. That's the myth. That's the lie. But Jesus shows us otherwise. Think about it. Jesus was fully human, so that means he had sexual desires. Maybe you've never thought about that before. He had sexual desires, but he was perfect and pure. He never had a lustful, sinful thought or desire or action for a moment. He was gloriously perfect. One of the most amazing things to think about is that Jesus never lusted for a moment. He was perfect, and he never expressed his sexuality. And so if you're single in this room, it is a gift from God. Singleness is not a sign of inferiority or failed plans for your life, or even smaller joy. No, singleness is this unique testimony to all of us that the joy that we're really after is not found in marriage or found in sexual fulfillment. It's found in God. It's not found in those things because you can get those things and still be unhappy. And singleness is this testimony saying, if I have God, that's what it means to be fully human. Jesus can show us that restricting sexuality will actually lead to more joy over time. And lastly, Jesus offers you forgiveness like no one else. I need you to hear me on that. There is a, this is a room of people, and we're honest about this, we've got a lot of failures to deal with. And Jesus offers forgiveness like no one else. There is no sexual sin he is not able to forgive, none. Jesus is not scared away by your sexual sin. Some of his closest disciples were former prostitutes. He's not scared away by sexual sin. But so many of you, listen, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You, you hear that incredible claim of forgiveness, guilt-free claim. But it, honestly, it feels hollow and empty because we've heard it before maybe and we failed again. We've heard it before maybe, and we were so excited. I've been forgiven, great, and then we failed again. And we just feel like I've cashed in all my chips on this one, and there's no grace left for me. Or maybe you've never heard that before, and you're realizing, I don't think that's true if you knew what I had done. 
But the promise God has made and continues making is that all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus doesn't speak to you today, to you today. Don't apply it to somebody else. Apply it to you. Jesus speaks to you today, not just with a word of forgiveness, but with a word about what he's already done. About the the forgiveness already accomplished. Your sorrow over your sin will never warrant God's forgiveness. You can feel bad all day and that won't make God forgive you. The only sorrow that can warrant the forgiveness of God is the sorrow Jesus felt on the cross for your sin and mine. That's the only way forward for us. Jesus sees your sexual sin more clearly than you, and he feels the pain of it more sharply than you, and he doesn't define you by it anymore. He defines you by himself. If you're in Christ, you're not guilty, you're not dirty, you are his, and forgiveness is always yours. It's a couple of weeks ago, um, I was talking to my five-year-old daughter, Elle. And I asked her, I said, Elle, is there anything you need to ask God for forgiveness for today? And I asked her, and she immediately put her head down and kind of shuffled her feet. I said, baby girl, is there, is there anything you need to ask God for, for forgiveness today? And she looked at me, and she says, Daddy, I don't like asking for forgiveness. I said, why is that? And I said, why is that? She put her head back down on the ground and she said, because what if he says no? Because what if he says no? And I had this sweet moment with my little girl and I I lifted up her head and I made eye contact with her. I had to look at her and say, he'll always say yes, my love. He'll always say yes. She said, why, daddy? I said, because Jesus made it so that every single time you ask, he says yes. Or do you not know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You were. I was. Past tense. It's not who you are, Christian. You were those things. He says, but you were washed, made clean. You were sanctified, set apart, especially for him. You were justified, made confident before God. Why? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, if you were to keep a record of sins, God, who could stand? God, if if our ability to call upon you and pray to you and be take hope in your promises was dependent on our sexual purity, God, we confess we'd be lost. God, if this whole thing's dependent on us, God, we are left 
hopeless because we see in us and around us, God, just the brokenness in this area. And God, I'm thankful that you are of such a character that you have made a salvation that when we go to Jesus, the answer is always yes. Every time we failed and we're looking at ourselves, God, and we hate ourselves for what we did, we're so annoyed that we keep failing. And Jesus, your answer is still yes. Jesus, you have made God our Father and the the resounding sound of heaven is yes. It's not hard for me to forgive you. You're mine. Every time you forgive us, God, you remind us of just how powerful the cross of Jesus really is. That it doesn't grow weary in forgiving us because it is that pure, that perfect, that strong. So God, make us a people who believe that who don't look to our sorrow as the way we're forgiven. We look to the sorrow of the cross say, that's why I'm forgiven. And that, God, when we receive that word from your scriptures that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God, when we receive those words, turn us into people who now fight against every single thing in our life that leads us to sexual sin. God, make us people who don't make peace with things that lead us away from you. Because God, this city, this city needs people who are honest about the ways they failed. And they need people who say, there's a better identity I have. It's better. So that when the the God of sex lets people down and destroys them. God, we're a safe haven to say, we know. We've been there. Jesus is better. God, thank you for the grace that you've given us and the power we have. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.